Words always have a direction to them. They always come from somewhere and they always have a particular purpose. They're not just words. Words come out of the heart. And messy words come from a messy heart. I was the recipient of some messy words this week. And they came from a messy heart. I'd love for you to turn in your, in your Bibles if you can. Come to Matthew chapter 12 with me, please. Matthew 12. Just going to go to verse 33 of Matthew 12. As we read this, I want you just to think about the text because I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions after it. This is what Jesus says. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I think that's meant to take your breath away. Did you hear what Jesus just said? That's not me, that's what Jesus said. He said that you and I will give account for every careless word that we've ever spoken. How many have you spoken? I don't think I'd even be able to count the number that I've spoken. Verse 37 there, For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Look at what Jesus says. Have a look there. Good fruit comes from where? A good tree. All right? And the tree that Jesus is talking about is what, mate? It's the heart, all right? Good fruit, good things come out of a good heart. And what's the specific fruit that Jesus speaks of in this passage? Words. Good guess, man. It's words, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying you have a good heart, you'll have good words. That's what he's saying. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And right at the end there he says, for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus is not saying that your words can win you salvation. I think what Jesus is saying is that your words testify to a changed heart. That's what your words do. You see, your words come from what you worship and what you love. They're an outworking of what's ruling your heart in the moment. And today we're going to look at a section out of Ephesians 4 that talks about the need for people in the church to speak the truth in love to one another. So can you flip across with me to Ephesians 4? I just want to read the the exact section that we're looking at today. So flick across to Ephesians 4. We're just going to do verse 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think there's, there's three things that I just want to cover out of Ephesians 4 here today, and that's the risk the antidote, and the end game. So let's have a look at the risk. Have a look at verse 14 there in Ephesians 4. The risk, the risk for this church, the risk for the church in general is very, very real. What is that risk? Well, God gives the gifts to the, the leaders of the church so that the church would grow to maturity and stability. The risk is that you'd be children. That's not what we, what we want, right? You raise a kid for like 50 years and they're still a kid at the end of 50 years and you're not even supposed to raise them for 50 years but if you kept raising a child the whole time at the end of 50 years and they were still a child there'd be something wrong, right? You've got to do better than that. That would be a massive problem. And Paul's saying it, we, he doesn't want the church, he doesn't want the church of Ephesus to be like children who get tossed to and fro. Forces are going to come upon the church that are going to threaten to corrupt and destroy it. There's going to be pressures coming upon the church and there are pressures that come upon the project. Forces come upon the project to corrupt it and to wreck what God's doing in the church. And Paul would say the same thing to us. The goal is not that we would flake around and we'd be children and be tossed to and fro by things, but we would actually be strong. And what's the objective of us speaking good words to one of the, the, the objective of us speaking good words is that all of us would grow up into communion with Christ and grow up into Christ. You can see here that, that Paul's kind of talking about human cunning, the wind of doctrine. Um, look, people don't talk about it that much, right, these days, about false teaching in the church. It's, it's, it's not, you with me? I mean, we all kind of sit there and you have this kind of sense that there's stuff that's just not quite right, but it's not cool to kind of call that stuff out. And Paul's saying, let's, we, we need people to grow up from being children so that every fresh gust of teaching doesn't just blow us off course. I mean, there is false teaching in the church. It wasn't just back then. There's false teaching in the church now. I mean, Paul doesn't specify the false teaching that he's talking about. He's, he's general in a sense, just saying stuff is going to come and you need to make sure that you're in church and that you're growing up from being a kid so that you don't get tossed around by it. Because here's the truth. People can be very cunning, can't they? Has anyone ever noticed that? They can trick people. They can deceive people and you need to be discerning. I mean, this is why you need to be in a church. This is why you need to be connected to leadership that God's given the gifts to because that's how you stay on track. That's how you don't get blown around. Let's just, I'll just pause for a minute. What are some fads that, that the church has seen theologically over, the, over history? All right, well, we'll start with a really straightforward, easy one. That you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. That was in the Bible, right? Or it is in the Bible. You know that one. 
You know, you've got to comply with the law to, to be saved. And you end up um, with the first pickle joke in uh, Galatians 5, 7 to 12, if I can say that. You are running well who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from, you who call, not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view, but the one that is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Cut it off. <laughs> All right? And you just go, well, that's a bit full on for church, right? Well, it's in the Bible. All right? And you could kind of argue it might be the first pickle joke. All right? In the Bible. What was going on there? There was false teaching in the church and it needed to be called out. And we get most of a whole book of the Bible dedicated to calling out this false teaching. Something a little bit closer to our time was, um, has been the resurrection. John Dominic Crossan is a Catholic guy who was part of a mob in the States uh, a couple of decades ago called the Jesus Seminar who uh, basically, uh, in a nutshell, they basically all got together, they got different coloured beads and they had these tubes and whenever someone read something out of the Gospels, they'd drop a, a different coloured bead in there depending on whether they thought what was read was something Jesus said, he might have said, he probably didn't say or he definitely didn't say. That's, that's basically the four categories, I think. You can read books, uh, that's not an exhaustive description, so if you find something that's not completely tight in that description, that was a 10 second version. All right. So that's what they would do. They would put these beads in and they'd work out from all these experts whether something, um, whether something was said by Jesus or not. Listen to what John Dominic Crossan said about the resurrection. Jesus' burial by his friends was totally fictional and unhistorical. He was buried, if buried at all, by his enemies and the, and the necessarily shallow grave would have been easy prey for scavenging animals. He got into Time magazine at the time. He was pretty famous for his statements and time had pretty well worked out that whenever you talk about Jesus, you sell lots of copies. So they, they, uh, they kind of reported on him. Um, I remember hearing it reported as uh, John Dominic Crossan said that Jesus' body was pulled down from the cross, thrown in a shallow grave and eaten by wild dogs, which is pretty much a, a, um, a street-level version of what I just read out to you there. When he was uh, asked about that, I remember seeing in a... In a uh, I think it was another Time magazine article after that. They asked him for his proof of that. And you know what he said? That's just a hunch. That's a uh, that's false doctrine. That's what it is. It's false doctrine. Um, let me give you a couple more while we're being controversial. Maybe not so much then, but now it's going to get a bit more controversial. Uh, prosperity gospel. That's a false teaching. I'm pretty sure I've never heard someone saying that if you follow Jesus and you give your money to Jesus, um, he'll bless you or give you more money in return. I've never heard them quote 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, which says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I've never heard that. It's like, give us your money. God gives you more. It's, it's false. It's not true. Is it true that God... God blesses people? Yes, it is. Is it true that there is a, a prosperity that God wants to bring upon his people that sometimes includes material things? Absolutely. Is it true that, that God feels more confident, I think, if I can use that word to describe God, that God feels more confident with someone who manages little so that he might actually give them more? Absolutely. 
You, you with me? But it's not this mathematics formula where it's just like, come to God and he'll make your life great. Because the 11 disciples, it didn't end very well. Has anyone ever noticed that? Like a bunch of them, come on, they died. Like pretty much all 11. The last one seems to have died by natural causes, exiled on an island. Now, that's not a, a four-bedroom house with a double lock-up garage and an ensuite, is it? And it's not two cars in the driveway. That's all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If they rejected me, they will reject you. That's what that is. Are you up for that? Let me ask you. Because I don't like rejection. And usually people who do like rejection have got a problem. <laughs> what about this one? Another theological fad I reckon there's kicking around in our days, universalism. Everyone gets saved in the end. I think it's wrong. It's just wrong. Everyone doesn't get saved in the end. Is it, there's some, something of a rejection of the doctrine of hell around the place at the moment. I remember... Um, Uh, I was at a Gospel Coalition conference down in Brisbane and um, it might have been last year, I think, and uh, there was a fellow there who was uh, quite good friends with John Piper and uh, they had this roundtable conversation at a Gospel Coalition America meeting and uh, they were talking about why people don't share Jesus with their neighbours and John Piper just said two words. He goes, preach hell. <laughs> That's what you need to do, preach hell. There's eternal consequences for not following Jesus. He goes, you just seem to preach that more in your church. You preach hell more, people are going to go out and tell people about Jesus more. Because you love people that aren't going to heaven. Right? Come back with me to verse 14 of Ephesians 4. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You know the word for uh, craftiness there is a word used of the devil. And you better believe that he's going to get involved in stuff. You know, yet, I mean, his, his, his native language is to lie. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, I'm afraid that as a serpent, as the serpent deceives Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's the same Greek word underneath cunning there as it is in Ephesians 4. How does the devil work? Well, he works supernaturally. He works through people. He works through idolatry. He works through you exchanging God for a lie and worshipping something that's not God. He is a liar. And you can expect him to be involved in any lie that's getting around. That's the risk. Number two, the antidote. Have a look at verse 15 for me. What's the antidote to this risk? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We need to speak the truth in love to one another in a way that it promotes growth into Christ. Tim Chester says this, love without truth is like doing heart surgery with a wet fish, but truth without love is like doing heart surgery with a hammer. He's right, isn't he? 
I mean, we can all sit here, and I'm sure, I don't think there would be a person in this room that hasn't been scarred and hurt by someone else's words. You know that's true. There's a little um, metaphor that I, uh, that I often use to, to describe the way that people do conflict, and uh, many of you would have heard it before, but I think generally people kind of tend to be at one end of this spectrum on the uh, screen here. You tend to either be a turtle in a conflict situation or a cowboy. All right. Let me tell you um, what a cowboy is. A cowboy is someone who just goes, I've got to get on my horse. There's a whole bunch of things I need to say here. I've got a couple of six-shooters filled with rounds. I might as well just let them go. All right? And they just kind of give it to people. Right? If you wanted to really push it, they're kind of the people who are like truth without love. All right? The most loving thing right now is for me just to say everything that I'm thinking right now. I'm just going to put it all out there. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are a little bit more like turtles. And the last thing you hear from them is, thunk, all right? And it's their head and all their appendages going inside the shell, all right? And then you don't hear from them for a while, okay? But they're inside the shell with their iPhone on, the voice recorder on their iPhone on, recording everything that goes on that the cowboy's saying. Because often cowboys and turtles marry each other. What kind of children they have is a whole, is a, a totally weird thing. Sometimes you get cowboys marry a cowboy, right? In terms of the way that they do conflict. And you just better believe that's a hot, loud house, all right? Um, and, and lots of things kind of get out there. But it's kind of this cowboy and this turtle thing. And the turtle is inside the shell, not saying that much. It's too dangerous to go outside. The bullets are flying, all right? Better for me to keep my head down. And then about two weeks later, they might come out and actually say to the cowboy, I had a bit of an issue with something that you said a fortnight ago. And the cowboy goes, what? I don't even know what you're talking about now. It's over and done. And it's like, I've got a bit of an issue with it. I want to talk about it. And then there's another gunfight at OK Corral sometimes. Uh, Ange is a cowboy and I'm a turtle by nature in terms of the way that we handle conflict. All right? Um, and the truth is that... Um, if you push a turtle far enough, you know, what a you know what a turtle does? A turtle straps on a suicide vest and detonates. <laughs> they do. Have, you've seen this, right? They strap it on. It's like, I've had enough. That's it. And I've taken everyone out with me. <laughs> right? And one of the things a turtle does is, obviously, they, keep, they often keep playing the, uh, the voice recording in their head for those two weeks in between when it happened and when they say something about it. What's, um, what's God's call to us? Well, God's call to us, uh, if you have, uh, in the way that we cash things out, down this end of the spectrum is the turtle. That, that might be, you, someone could argue, and I, I think it's a bit dodgy, and we'll get to that in a minute, but someone could argue that that's love without truth, and the other end is truth without love. Okay? And I think what God's really wanting us all to do, he's wanting the cowboys to move toward the turtles and the turtles to move toward the cowboys. So one of the things I've needed to do in my marriage is uh, learn how to be a little bit of a cowboy sometimes because that's really helpful to my wife for me to speak the truth to her. And sometimes it's helpful for her to be a little bit more of a turtle with me and that helps us to get on a little bit better. Can you just flip in your Bibles across to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. We're just going to read verse 15 to 18. 
so it'd probably be just fractionally kind of startling for you, if it's possible to be fractionally star startled. Verse 15, uh, Leviticus 19, you shall not do, you shall do no injustice in court, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbour. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbour. I am the Lord. Listen to this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly. The NIV translate that as you, will, you, you must rebuke your neighbour. You shall reason frankly with your neighbour, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you see what God's saying there in Leviticus? Is he saying that if there's an issue with your brother or your sister where they're sinning and you do nothing against it, you bear some of that sin. Like it's actually a sinful thing. It's a wrong thing for you not to say something. And this is a really important thing for all the turtles out there to hear. All right? Because you just go, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I'm not going to confrontation because it's painful. And usually the people that like confrontation and like conflict, as I said before, they've got a, they've got a whole other problem going on. I, uh, I used to teach with a guy who used to love a good argument. And, and we would just, he would just say things that he didn't even believe. <laughs> and it would start this big debate and then argument, and then in about 25 minutes' time he'd go, I don't even agree with what I said before anyway. Because he just liked... And he was, he was a nice guy. He's a friend of mine, right? But it was just weird. It was a weird reality. And I'd get all fired up and then I'd sin because I was getting angry at him because of the stuff he was saying. And then it was kind of all over. And so, all right, now I need to repent. You incur sin if the opportunity and there's a necessity for you to speak the truth to your neighbour and you don't do it. You get that? All you turtles out there? Like saying nothing, I mean, we all kind of think about words and you kind of think, oh, okay, so I need to be careful not to say the wrong thing. Well, yeah, there's a whole bunch of times where you need to be careful not to say nothing. You actually need to say something. You see, confronting people is obedience to God. If you put the truth out there but you don't love people, there isn't love. And if you don't confront people in a sinful world, where sin deceives people and people get tricked, if you, get, if you got through a whole year and you never confronted anyone about anything, you, you haven't done your job. You haven't done what God's called you to. And sometimes in the church, I think we, uh, we, we can get in this vibe sometimes in the church that we almost never do rebuke or confrontation. So when it happens, it's this massive big thing instead of just realising it. this needs to be a natural part of the way that we talk with one another and how we support each other and how we operate on behalf of of God, sorry, in partnership with God, I should say. I'm not saying, some of you are going, oh, this is so good. <laughs> He's just giving me a license, right? There's some people who are just going, I'm going out to get my colt. That's the gun and the horse, all right? And I'm going to start shooting. I'm not saying that. You can't do that with Ephesians 4. We just read the whole passage about being kind and merciful and gentle and forgiving. I mean, you think about a person like that who's kind, merciful, gentle and forgiving. If they speak the truth, they're going to do it really well, aren't they? And it's going to be really fruitful and productive. There's a sin of omission when you avoid confronting people, even if it's about cleaning up their room. 
Listen to this from James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Biblical truth is so counterintuitive to the way that we live life. Confrontation needs to be a natural, small, incremental part of just about everything that we do. And it's not about pronouncing judgments. It's about helping people to see. It's about asking the question, like, what, what is the work that I need to do to help this particular person see the things that God wants them to see? It's not your agenda. It's not about what you're up to. And it's not even a monologue, right? A lot of us think about this and you just kind of go, that's going to be a monologue, right? I'm going to stand up, I'm going to make some kind of pronouncement. No, it's a dialogue. And I think what we need to gun for in the project here and what I think Paul's suggesting is we just, we just need to have lots of mini, healthy, loving little pieces of confrontation where we shape each other and we're in community together and we're in relationship and we're growing up into the head who is Christ. Moments of insight leading to more and more and more moments of insight. You see, we, we, uh, God's call to love actually comes out of our love of him. You know, we, God's call to confront is an obedience thing to God. 1 John 4, 19 to 21, you, you know this bit, you know. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. See, Leviticus 19 says that you can hate your brother and you need to, you need to deal with that, but I think you can actually hate your brother or your sister by not, by not saying something and speaking the truth in love to them. See, tolerance, niceness, and politeness don't always equal love. Who knows that's true? Have you noticed that loving people will speak even if it creates tense, upsetting moments? And it's not easy to speak the truth in love. That's what Paul Tripp says about it. The truth is that we fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. Ouch. We fear others misunderstanding us or being angry with us. We are afraid of what others might think. We don't want to endure the hardships of honesty because we love ourselves more than we love our neighbours. I think he's right but we need to be careful how we do it, right? It always has to be truth and love spoken at the same time. Listen to what Ray Ortland says about Francis Schaeffer, for those of you who knew him or know of him. Sorry, you probably didn't know him because he was in America most of the time, but he says this, I once heard Francis Schaeffer say that if he had a conversation with a liberal theologian, he would hope that his theological opponent would walk away with two equally dominant impressions. Francis Schaeffer really disagrees with him and Francis Schaeffer really cares for him. That's what we're gunning for, right? That people, that we really care for people, but when we speak the truth in love and we confront, that's what we're gunning for. Uh, Ravi Zacharias quotes this Indian proverb, that would be the... Uh, 
the India of uh, Gandhi, but this is the Indian proverb that he often quotes, uh, that I've heard him quote before. Once you've cut off a person's nose, there's no point giving them a rose to smell. There's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? And like, if we just think more broadly here about the way that Christianity relates to the rest of the world, we're pretty good at cutting people's noses off. It's just like, you're wrong. You know, we kind of just go hard at people and we kind of do the truth thing. And then at the end of it, they've got no nose left. And you go, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And they're just going, I don't care about Jesus. I once had a, um, I ran a class in the school here where I decided I'd get some people in with different kind of worldviews with senior high students and see if they could convert the kids in the school across to their worldview. So I got a um, Jehovah's Witness to come in and kind of fed the kids to the lines uh, in, a, in a controlled way, uh, I might add. And a mate of mine who was a rabid uh, atheist I got him to come in and uh, you know what they said about the atheist guy at the end? Uh, all of their comments reflected the fact that they didn't want to listen to anything that he said because of the way that he said it. They didn't even really engage with his arguments that much. Like they got so fired up by the arrogance of the guy and the vitriol coming out of him toward God and how he wasn't being fair toward uh, spiritual things, even giving it a fair hearing, that they just started thinking up all these reasons why you don't listen to him. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I think people are like that with Christians, right? Like we're just, we're meant to be a sweet aroma to people who are perishing. And we're a stench in people's nostrils sometimes, aren't we? Maybe not you. Maybe you know someone like that. Let me give you a few tips on uh, speaking the truth in love. Here's the first thing. Start with listening to people. Oh, you go, yeah, it's obvious, all right? Yeah, well, it is obvious, but we don't always do it particularly well. Pay them respect before you disagree with them. I mean, it, when there's, you, you kind of need to climb inside the world that the other person's in before you speak against it. It's almost like before you disagree with someone... You need to make sure that you understand their position well. I mean, if you described where they were at in something, would they agree with you? Would they say, yeah, that's me? Or would they go, no, that's not it at all? It's not a watertight uh, way of looking at things, but that's a really helpful way of looking at things. And it's interesting when you think about speaking the truth in love, and I'm, I'm probably thinking a little bit more about uh, Christians with the rest of the world, um, or even with other denominations to some extent we tend to be the most impatient with people who are closest to us have you noticed that and just kind of being on your guard about that uh, we tend to cut breaks for people who are not in our clan <laughs> but if you're in our clan you get less all right you kind of does anyone know what i'm talking about it's kind of it's going to nail this thing down even harder and you've got less excuse i'm sorry Look, relationship is critical when you speak the truth in love. And please avoid doing it on the internet. <laughs> Alan Jacobs said this, he said, the blogosphere is the friend of information but the enemy of thought. And I think that's a very perceptive comment. There's lots of information on there and lots of people get their rage on, but actual thoughtful, reflective people on the internet, they don't always go together particularly well. Have you noticed that? 
I once heard a good rule, the more significant and important the relationship, the less technology you should be using. You know why? Because the less technology you use, the more information you get about the way that the other person's relating to you. If someone sends you an abusive text message, well, so sometimes you might go, well, that's abusive. And then other times you go, well, it might be. I'm not sure. Why are you not sure? Because you're not looking at their face. You didn't hear their tone of voice. You didn't look at their body language. I would encourage you, and that certainly is the commitment of the elders at the church here, is that we want to talk to people face to face. That's, that's what we want to do. We want to do relationship with you. And I trust that we will always do that. We don't want to resort to being people, and we would encourage you not to resort to being people that um, fire off emails, fire off text messages, that send Facebook messages, that kind of toast people. I'm a bit of a Dilbert fan. Is anyone else here a Dilbert fan? As Wally, like with the glasses in Dilbert. I remember seeing this... Um, this uh, cartoon where Wally's, um, he's, he's just kind of smoked his glasses everywhere and he's got burn marks all over his head and uh, I think Dilbert stood up over the cubicle and said, you're mighty brave in cyberspace, flame boy. <laughs> and obviously they've been having this interchange and it's like there is something about uh, the internet that gives people a voice that would probably never come out when it was in person. Number three. I'm going to finish up. What's the end game? Come down with me to verse 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. Let's flick back over there if you haven't got it. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what the end game is? The end game of all of your words, all the words that you use, is to move other people towards communion, union, participation and oneness with Jesus. That's what it's meant to do. And I would encourage you to just stop for a minute and think about that. Is that where your words go? shared this story a couple of times with the restoration group people over the last couple of days but on Friday morning I went for a walk out at Ravensbourne Rainforest and I didn't see this exact bird but I saw a bird a bit like this in the rainforest it's a little bit different it had a grainy brown kind of breast to it and, uh, and brown wings like that and uh, I just kind of stopped and I looked at this bird as it was sitting on this branch and then it flew about three metres away and I couldn't see it and so I stood there and I looked and I looked and I kind of bent down and I thought it's going to be there somewhere because I didn't fly, I didn't see it fly anywhere else. It's, it's going to be where it flew to, I've just got to be able to find it. And sure enough, it was just sitting there. And then I just started thinking about it and this thought just kind of hit me. I just thought, this bird is in the rainforest. But because of the colour of the bird, it was in the rainforest in a way that I wasn't in the rainforest. It was in the rainforest in a way that the edges of this bird almost blurred. You know, that's, that's what we're gunning for in the church, right? 
We're, we're gunning for people to have a communion and a union with Christ where the edges blur a little bit. And people go, well, where does Jesus start and Peter finish? Where did, where's that? You know, I mean, John 15 talks about the branches being in the vine. Like, where, where does the branch end and the vine starts? See, that's what we're wanting to do with our, our, our words, isn't it? That we're wanting people to grow up into the, the image of Christ so much that they just kind of blur into Christ a bit. This is what we're meant to be doing for each other. But in closing, I just want to make a couple of comments about the fact that we don't always do this. I mean, most of the time today I've talked about speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we use unhelpful words. And I want to say to you this morning that you can say words that separate people from Jesus. Now, Jesus will work. If we're one of his children, he will work to bring good out of every word that's said to us. But let's be honest, words can separate us from Jesus. So you can be loving and not speak the truth. You can speak the truth and not be loving. And you can be neither speaking the truth nor loving. You know what you need to do if uh, you've done poorly with your words? You need to repent. And you need to reconcile. And I want to push it even a step further. Because sometimes I think people can say words and words are cheap. Some of you sitting there right now can think of words that were said to you 20, 30, 40 years ago. And sometimes it can be easy for someone to come up and just go, oh, I'm sorry, sorry for saying that. And that's part of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is the great airbag, isn't it? Forgiveness is absorbing evil and stopping it from going any further. Sometimes, most times, maybe all the time, I think we need to go further than just saying sorry. We need to go further than asking for forgiveness. What's that further? I think we see it in the um, story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He was required by law to give an additional fifth on top of restoring it. He gave fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's restitution. It's really close to retribution, but it's completely different. So what do you need to return to someone that you hurt? I remember a uh, teacher that I taught with at the school here many years ago said to me, he said, restitution is about making the victim no longer the victim in the situation. If you've used unhelpful words, if you've used words that are not speaking the truth in love, what restitution are you going to make? 
Doesn't, restitution doesn't buy forgiveness. I trust that you see that up there with Zacchaeus. He's not trying to buy something. It's the evidence of repentance. You see, when you speak a word to someone that hurts them, you take a powerful position over them and you make them a victim. When you make restitution, you know what you're doing? You're taking the lowly road and you're making them not a victim anymore. Do you think the people who Zacchaeus gave four times back, so he, he uh, refunded the money that he ripped them off as a tax collector and he restored it fourfold. Do you think they felt like a victim anymore after that? Some of them probably went out and set up some kind of financial investment strategy. <laughs> All right? Go and deal with Zacchaeus. You'll make lots of money. <laughs> he rips you off, but then you get back fourfold. Like that's a 400% increase, right? Do you think they walked away feeling like a victim at that point? Well, probably they still did a little bit, but do you know what? The attitude and the actions and the restitution that Zacchaeus made turned the tables on victimhood. And I think you know this, right? When, when you feel really, really sorry about something, is anyone with me? Like you want to do something, don't you? It's like when you feel really sorry, it's like, I just want to do something about this. And you start thinking, how can I do something about this? How can I fix it? And there's a whole bunch of stuff and ways that we can sin against each other where you can't fix it. But you might actually be able to find a way that you can bless someone and help them not to be as much of a victim. You know, John the Baptist said in Luke 3 verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I think restitution does that. Is there a rule in the Bible about restitution for when you hurt people with your words no there's not am i putting something on you and saying that you've got to do it all the time no i'm not even saying that but i think if there's a fullness of repentance and sorry in your life for the times where you speak badly to people there will be a corresponding fruit of wanting to minimize the victimhood of the people that you've hurt let me finish on a good note i want to i want you to hear this God always speaks truth in love to you, without exception. In the ravages of a world where people sin and they're sinned against, you can always guarantee that God will never be sloppy in his communication to you. He's always very, very precise. If you're in a place where people speak to you in ways that make your head spin, you can take hope and refuge and your stronghold's going to be that he will never ever ever do that to you he will always speak the truth to you in love and you know the word that is the most beautiful word in a sense in the scriptures that god speaks to you you know what that is yes that word is a beautiful word 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus is not a careless speaker. Jesus is a fierce speaker. Jesus said that people were like whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. 
But when he went to the cross, the word that he spoke to you that will be the most precious word in your life is yes to every single promise that God has made. I'll be with you. I will care for you. Even to your old age and to grey hairs, I will carry you. I will teach you so that you can run against the troop, so that you can leap over a wall. Every promise that you can think of right now has this beautiful word in Christ of yes 